This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, and welcome again to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. This is Stephen Daffron. I want to have a quick conversation here with Larry Summers, who's a member of our Global Advisory Committee. Um, just for everyone's background, Larry is the former Treasury Secretary. He is America's leading economist, at least that's from my perspective, he is America's leading economist. In addition to serving as the 71st Secretary of the Treasury during the Clinton administration, Dr. Summers served as Director of the White House National Economic Council in the Obama administration, as President of Harvard University, and as the Chief Economist of the World Bank. And we're blessed to have him on our Global Advisory Council, helping us think about how Motive Partners moves through the world these days. So with that as a, as a kickoff, Larry, if you don't mind talking to us about, you were there in the midst of the 2008 crisis. It's changing since then. We hear and read a lot about the secular stagnation that, from your perspective. Tell us what you think is happening in the financial services landscape. Well, fortunately, Steve, we're not where we were in uh, 2008 and early 2009. In retrospect, those were remarkably uh, scary times. One wondered about the continuing viability of even some of our largest and most uh, secure institutions. Fortunately, uh, President Obama, building on things that had happened before, was able to do enough to keep the system together. We delivered very strong fiscal stimulus to the economy very quickly. The stress tests and the sense that the government would stand behind financial institutions represented an important injection of confidence. We caught some luck as asset prices started to rally. And I think the president and those of us who worked with him can take a lot of satisfaction from the fact that uh, the V between the very slow growth in the first and second quarter of 2009 and the rapidly accelerated growth in the second part of that year was the most rapid turnaround that the American economy has had since the Second World War. But I think it's also fair to say that the pace of recovery has been disappointing. You know, if you think about it, uh, the growth rate since the trough in the second quarter of 2009 has averaged just about 2%. And that's with the very substantial tailwind that comes from an unemployment rate that declined from nearly 10 to 4%. So if you asked what the underlying growth rate was without that cyclical tailwind, it's a rather disappointing number. And that suggests that there's a great deal we have to work on uh, to strengthen this economy. So as we think about strengthening the economy, and again, acknowledging that the institutions, the financial institutions that, that barely made it through the crisis of 2008, and as we think about investing in the financial services world and financial technology, what are the things those institutions should be thinking about? What are the things those institutions should be doing? And therefore, how can we think about investing in them in a way that actually prepares us to grow the economy more robustly? I think one of the relative strengths of the American economy 
is that we have a financial system that is in important respects resilient because it relies both on banks and large financial institutions and on capital markets. And the fact that we're relying on both those systems gives us some extra robustness and resilience. And so I think that investors would do well to look for both opportunities among large incumbent institutions and looking for opportunities for new institutions that were going to provide capital in new ways. There have been a range, I think, of quite exciting innovations. I think of Square, where I have an involvement on the board in providing lending services based on information advantages in ways that banks have not traditionally been able to do. And I think it's important that we build from the strength of our existing large institutions, but also that we recognize that uh, what's true in ecology is also true in economics, that a more diverse and varied environment is also likely to be a more resilient and robust environment. It's true of forests, and it's also true of financial systems. So I hope that uh, you will be investors in different kinds of lending businesses, different kinds of payment businesses, as well as being an investor in businesses that provide various kinds of soft services, particularly services associated with information technology to the large institutions. I also think that it will be important to invest in maximally sophisticated risk management, risk management that goes beyond uh, the assumption of the normal curve, which was so clearly falsified mm. in 2008. Mm -hmm. Risk management that recognizes that you can't be certain what correlations will be and that correlations will often move towards one during periods of crisis. I think there's some tendency in the aftermath of the crisis towards a kind of revulsion against finance and a desire to simply shrink the size of the financial services sector. Apart from the jobs that the financial services sector provides, I think that's very misguided because I think it's profoundly important to the functioning of any economy that savers, uh, who want to prepare for their retirement or want to prepare to send their kid to college or want to prepare a bequest for their kids, have their capital intermediated as, as effectively as possible to those with opportunities to invest with a high return, whether those are investments in research and development, whether they're investments in new infrastructure, whether they're investments in information uh, technology. So it seems to me that investing in a more sophisticated, less frictional, more diverse, more robust and resilient financial system is not just an attractive profit opportunity for investors, but also a contribution to the general functioning of the economy. And that that's probably even more true now in the post-crisis environment than it was in the past. I've heard you describe the economy as brittle. And, and, and I wonder if that, in your description of the economy as brittle, if you think about the effect that having 
technology become more and more reflexive in how the economy performs, does that make it more brittle or does that help solve the problem? Well, I think we don't know. Uh, certainly one respect that I've emphasized its brittleness is a more macroeconomic uh, aspect. Uh, traditionally, the way we've responded to economic downturns and recessions has been that the Fed has cut interest rates by 500 basis points. And it looks like there's not going to be that kind of room for a 500 basis point cut the next time we have a recession. But the reliance on information technology that may in some cases be slightly uh, beyond human control, I think it's a very difficult question to know what it will do to resilience. On, on the one hand, you worry that all the algorithms will go in the same direction and all the pressures will be to sell or to buy and markets will melt up or melt down and create substantial instability. On the other hand, operating with uh, algorithms that maintain their equanimity and don't panic in moments of very dramatic move may have some positive properties for stability. So I'm not altogether certain what the impact of more pervasive information technology will be. I do think it's very important that we avoid a system where everybody's relying on the same algorithm. I think the one of the oldest ideas in finance, uh, diversification, don't put all your eggs in one basket, applies not just to the elements of an individual portfolio, but the connectivities more broadly within the financial system. And don't uh, put all your flow through one pipe, it seems to me, is another valuable perspective of diversification. I know you know the company L Markets, um, and it's one of the ones that I that I point to for motive partners perspective, in that it does something that is both good for its investors, but also something that's good for transparency and resiliency in the banking and financial services world. Are there other kind of, of institutions or other kind of investments we can make that could have an impact, particularly have an impact on the transparency or resiliency of the market? I think there are... Many aspects um, where it's increasingly important to make a network uh, function effectively. What L Markets does is it uh, nets out a large amount of cross-cutting exposure and thereby reduces risk. That kind of thing was one of the impulses behind the derivatives legislation that I was involved in passing as one component of... Dodd Frank that encouraged the use of clearinghouses. And I think better systems of clearing, of custody, of settlement, all of that I think can make an important contribution to enabling everybody to remain confident and avoiding periods of contagious self-fulfilling panic to which history suggests financial systems can be prone. So more transparency, more collective activity rather than separate sequential bilateral activity can, I think, be a contributor to robustness. And certainly, as the example of L market shows, by increasing stability and reducing the size of the positions that firms need to take and therefore the amount of capital that needs to be associated with those positions, 
the economic advantage that such firms like L Markets can provide can be both microeconomic for the individual financial institution and also macroeconomic in supporting the entire system. What about thinking about the definition of financial institutions more broadly? One of the things that I'm seeing a lot of these days is when we're going in to invest in the components of the financial institutions, that we're involving institutions that wouldn't have been defined as financial. We're partnering with Google, for example. We're partnering with Amazon. We're bringing them into the into the middle of the financial services world. Should we be thinking about Google and Amazon as part of the financial services world as we as we look forward? I think there's there's a very old idea, which is the separation of banking and commerce, and more generally the separation of finance and commerce. And I wonder whether that's an entirely sound idea, at least in its cruder forms. I think that the substantial dismantling of GE Capital was probably a positive thing because I think the combination of a financial business with an operating business in that case probably brought some increased risk and didn't bring much in the way of synergy. But it seems to me that increasingly financial businesses and information businesses are engaged in quite similar activities. Seems to me that in a world where much of personal banking is going to take place on mobile telephones, it's hard to believe that the banking industry and the mobile telephone industry, smartphone industry, should be entirely separate. On the other hand, it's for good reason that we regulate banks much more heavily than we regulate other institutions in our society. And I think as these synergies in information and telecommunications between finance and other industries become more important, it's going to be important to make sure that those synergies proceed on the basis of economic efficiency and not on the basis of regulatory arbitrage. Be very unfortunate if the competitive advantage of an IT company or a telecom company was to not take the form of its financial strength or its financial efficiency, but the fact that rules, whether it was know your customer, rules, whether it was money laundering, rules, whether it was discrimination in lending, rules, whether it was consumer protection, if those rules were to be disproportionately applied to traditional finance and not to new entrants or new kinds of companies, I think that would be very unfortunate. I have to say, though, that that's kind of what's happening now, because as we do bring Amazon and Google and Azure and other components into the into the financial services world, they're not really covered by the same kind of rules that the financial institutions are. You were you were there at the creation for Dodd Frank. You saw how hell were the the architecture of that of that bill was put together. How successful do you think it has been? And how do you think it's being affected by the some of the rollbacks that are happening now? Yeah, the main thing I'd say about Dodd Frank is I wish it had happened earlier. Mm. If it had happened three years earlier, or five years earlier, or ten years earlier, a great deal of the pain that we saw in 2008 and 2009 
could have been avoided. Dodd-Frank was passed uh, when we're still very much in the crisis phase, and battlefield medicine is never perfect, so it's not a perfect bill. On the other hand, I think that institutions are better capitalized. Institutions are more liquid. There's more control over derivatives. There are enhanced procedures for dealing with moments of panic. And very importantly, there's much better consumer protection in uh, the mortgage space in particular. And so I think Dodd-Frank is something of which its authors can be proud. My reading is that the major positive elements of Dodd-Frank were not substantially scaled back by the most recent set of amendments, and that probably on balance, while there are probably some I would have preferred not to pass, I think on balance they probably moved us to a better system of financial regulation. But I think one of the items that has to be on the agenda is how we approach the financial activity of non-banks. This often goes under the term shadow banking system, but if one thinks about the full range of things that an Apple or a Google might become involved in, it's perhaps even broader than shadow finance. Last question. President Clinton always referred to you as someone who could see over the horizon and be prepared to execute when we got over the horizon. I've heard him pay you great compliments in that space. Look over the horizon for us and tell us what you see, especially think in terms of geographic changes. We haven't mentioned anything about China. Tell us how you see the world shaping up in the next two or three years. Look, I think the international issue that is going to define the first half of the 20th century is what happened between the United States and China. I think when history books are written 150 years from now about the period during which I had my career, the end of the Cold War will be the third story in those history books. The struggles between conflicts and elements of interaction between the Islamic world and other parts of the world will be the second story. And the rise of Asia led by China will be the largest story. And the question will be, can we find ways of maintaining mutual respect, recognizing that we're not going to be convergent on every issue, and yet ways in which, with respect, we can manage our competition and manage our competition in the economic and push our competition towards the economic sphere in ways that will cause our growth and China's growth to be beneficial for us and for the world. And I think we don't yet know the answer to that question, but uh, how China deploys its $3 trillion of reserves, what financial institutions in both countries do, how open markets remain, how differences over political questions are articulated and resolved, all of that will be immensely important. Yeah, thank you so much, Larry. Thank well, you. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for coming to see us. Thank you for your time and insights. 
And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.